right. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and give you our point of view as to what the heck is going on out there and to help you make some good investment decisions. Now, this past week uh, was short because of Labor Day, and I hope you all enjoyed that. But uh, I think our friendly traders are still having trouble coming back from their summer holiday because the trading volume is still very low. And, uh, well, quite frankly, not much happened during the week. Though uh, yesterday the Dow did close lower by 271 points. This after opening higher by about 160 points. It ended at 34,607. The S&P ended the week at 44.58. The Nasdaq at 15,115. Russell 2000 finished the week at 2229. Gold was lower at 1790 an ounce. Silver also lower at 2386 an ounce. Crude uh, lower week over week uh, by a bit at 69.72 a barrel. 10 year Treasury holding up at 1.34%. And soft white wheat also continuing at 1087 a bushel. The big drag on the market yesterday appeared to be Apple. Uh, They, uh, and I'm quoting from the news release, they can no longer force developers to use in-app purchasing. The stock dropped more than 3%. Now, I have no idea what in-app purchasing is, but apparently it's not a good thing as far as Apple is concerned. So, uh, you know, (laughs) in another, uh, how would I say, uh, monument of some sort this past week of uh, dubious achievement I think. September 6th is the traditional peak of the stock market because from September 6th until October 29th this is on average going back a number of years the uh, Dow has lost an average of 2.25% during that month. Well we've had again uh, Friday, yesterday, the S&P fell for the fifth day in a row. Now, that hasn't happened since June. Still, as far as these uh, five-day straight drops go, this one was pretty much a non-event. You know, the stock market is continuing to be pretty calm, and it's still trending upward. Even our drops are pretty benign. We're coming up on a whole year, a whole year of not having had one single drawdown of more than 5%. And we also just had a lousy jobs report. Well, sort of, if you saw or heard, if all you saw or heard was that type headline. The folks in Wall Street had been expecting an increase of uh, 720,000 net new jobs. Well, the economy only created 235,000 jobs, and uh, you can pretty much figure that that's a little lower than what was anticipated. There was the fewest jobs created since January of this year. And so that caused all the uh, wailing and moaning by the uh, usual suspects. But actually, to to paraphrase Mr. Paul Harvey, the rest of the story is that, in fact, the economy created a lot of new jobs last month. The problem is that it was below expectations. And if you know anything about Wall Street, the name of the game is Expectations. You know, are you doing better than or worse than expectations? That'll determine what happens more than the numbers in a lot of cases. So by knowing this (laughs) rationale, if that's what it is, 
it may give you some insight as to why in the market's moves what do what to rational people is considered good news well in fact it's seen as a bad thing by the traders for example your business could actually invent the 12th dimension but don't do it slower than expected in normal times we'd be having a big party about that increase of 235,000 jobs but as you may have read these don't qualify as normal times remember last year in just two months the economy dropped over 22 million jobs in the 16 months since that period we've added back 17 million new jobs that's pretty dang good now even better the national unemployment rate fell to 5.2 percent and except for three months at the economic peak in 1989 that 5.2 percent rate is lower than it was in every month from 1975 to 1988 so not bad now there are still many many companies desperate to find workers since the start of this year there's been a 50 percent jump in the number of job postings using uh, words like hiring urgently this last Wednesday, the government said there are 10.9 million job openings in the U.S. That's an all-time record, and that's more than 1.3 jobs per unemployed person. The one key stat that workers are seeing is higher wages. Higher hourly earnings rose by, excuse me, average hourly earnings rose by 0.6% last month, and that's a big percentage increase because over the last year now, wages are up 4.3%. The bond market is not being bothered by all this, um, well, what some would say are inflationary type events. Ten-year Treasury is yielding just 1.3 percent. In last Tuesday, or excuse me, next Tuesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will inflation uh, release the inflation report for August. That's the consumer inflation, and while inflation has trended higher over these past few months, it's been pretty uneven. See, economic indicators are trailing indicators. The market leads. The market will tell you what's going to be coming three to six months out. The economic reports are simply, well, here's what happened. And so for now, I believe the stock market doesn't have much to fear from the economy, even with this Delta thing. Now, coming up on Tuesday, uh, we will get the Consumer Price Index report, and we'll have a report on industrial production as well. Come Thursday, we get another jobless claims along with retail sales for August. Initial unemployment claims, which are a proxy for layoffs, moved lower last week, uh, down to 310,000 folks. The four-week moving average, which tends to smooth out the weekly volatility, also at a pandemic low. Claims have been trending lower since mid-July, which says that employers are holding on to their folks. Now, a number of people who voluntarily left a job in July, the most recent data, that's the second highest on record. And that's considered uh, a sign of labor market strength because folks aren't going to quit, mostly, unless they're confident they can get another job fairly quickly. The JOLTS report, I just like that title, Job Openings and Layoff Turnover Survey, JOLTS, it showed a, quote, steady increase in the number of workers voluntarily quitting their jobs. And as I said, that's a sign of strength in the labor markets in most instances. Jennifer Lee, senior economist at BMO Capital Markets, says uh, this is a super tight job market. And I think she hits it on the head with this note. She said the ongoing struggle to find the right worker for the right role continues. 
one of the reasons I think why we still have so many unemployed, uh, notwithstanding the number of jobs available. An index of the growth rate in the service sector continued to show good growth in August. Gains broad-based, 17 of the 18 industries reporting growth. And despite remaining near historical highs, it's pretty clear the service sector would still be expanding even more, more rapidly if it weren't for a slew of factors holding back output. Nearly all the people who responded to the survey uh, were talking about concerns over supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, logistical delays, and basically just a lack of stuff from which to make products. You know, in early last year, when the bug first showed up, our unemployment rate nationally was 3.5%. Wages for low-income earners were rising faster than wages for the high-income folks, living standards rising, the economy was on a roll. And then, because some scientists said lockdowns would stop the bug, they must do stand-up on the side. Uh, they turned all the lights off. Real GDP then fell at a 5.1% annual rate in the first quarter of last year, and then an annualized 31.2% in the second quarter. However, there are at least a few factors weighing on the economic growth uh, in the next 12 months. First, probably most important, the removal of any fiscal stimulus compared to what was done uh, last year and early this year. Uh, you take away the pain medication, so to say, and the economic pain can become even more evident. You know, the underlying damage is reflected in the many small businesses that have been and are being destroyed by the political lockdowns that will not be here to help our economy rebound as they have in prior recessions. And the problem is made, being made worse by these excess unemployment benefits, which have now shut down as far as I'm aware. And not only do those benefits slow the recovery, they translate into an erosion of worker skills and know-how. The Atlanta Fed uh, has a model that tracks uh, GDP growth, and as recently as the 17th of August, the uh, what they call their NOW model, GDP NOW model, was tracking 6.2% uh, annualized growth at the, in the third quarter. Three weeks later, it's just tracking at 3.7%. In the end, you know, full recovery of the economy is possible, but damage from past or future shutdowns in a large partisan bill that once again, like the New Deal and Great Society legislations did, significantly increases the influence of the government over the economy and threatens its pace of growth. We had some news about producer prices yesterday. They continue to go up in August. This is uh, tracking inflation at the manufacturer's level. The annualized rate of change uh, to date uh, is 10.7%. That's pretty big. So, you know, for years after the crisis, financial crisis, the question from many was whether or not the Fed could even induce a 2% inflation. We had that plow horse economy for such a long time. Well, the question now is whether the Fed will be able to get back down near 2% in the foreseeable future. Producer prices themselves up 8.3% year over year. Yeah, that's the highest in more than 10 years. Prices are accelerating. And while the Fed has continued to say higher inflation is transitory, it's getting kind of hard to, to play down rising numbers in certain places. You know, the supply chain issues continue to be a significant pressure on prices with no end in sight. 
from the shortage in semiconductors that has slowed production of everything from cars and trucks, household appliances, difficulties finding labor all around the world to fill the record number of job openings uh, to in here in the U.S., but also to manufacture stuff anywhere in the world, supply simply hasn't kept up with demand. And demand is still being heavily supported by an M2 money supply that's, then that M2 money supply is basically all the money that's floating around in the economy. It's 33% above the pre-virus levels, and that leaves both consumer and corporate pockets filled with cash. So while the supply chain issues are likely temporary, the huge increase in the money supply is what would really drive inflation over the long term. Fed seems to anticipate that inflation will subside later this year into next, but I think you might be seeing any waning in inflation later this year may prove temporary as the increase in money supply continues to gain traction as folks spend more money. And with fewer goods available, the supply-demand curve uh, works to accentuate the chance of higher inflation. Now, the Fed, uh, in spite of inflation running well above their 2% target, I don't think you'll see the Fed uh, signaling any change in plans to keep their short-term rates near zero for the foreseeable. And I don't think uh, the Fed's going to announce uh, tapering of the uh, quantitative easing until fourth quarter this year. They want inflation to trend above the 2% target for a prolonged period, while the labor market, which is also their kind of responsibility, I guess you could say, has to heal considerably further to get this Fed to seriously consider a move higher. Now, I want to talk about this thing about September, because lately <laughs> there's been a lot of well, innuendo about uh, the the markets in September. Year to date, and this is through yesterday's close, the Dow is up 12.4%, S&P up 18.8%, and the NASDAQ up 17.4%. Uh, now, there's a whole lot of investors and analysts that are still on the lookout for a major correction in September. We'll go into the outlook here shortly, and you'll hear from some of those analysts as to what they're thinking. But, you know, last week we did turn into September, and with that change came the usual warnings that September is the stock market's worst month. Well, let's talk about that. You know, this time around, the September caution started appearing early in August, with the uh, pundits and tea leaf readers and the members of the uh, Henny Penny School of uh, Market Forecasting well, they're all warning seasonal volatility is sure to strike. So, we bring you an annual reminder. Seasonal patterns are not predictive, and the calendar is not a market driver. You know, as usual, you have different reasons for why this September thing is around. In my experience, the notion of a bad September, or any good or bad calendar stretch, has long seemed pretty dang silly. The markets are efficient. They digest, take in, suck up, whatever you want to think of it as, all widely known information almost instantaneously. You know, September's average return, which is a statistically, which is the S&P's worst and only negative calendar month, well, it's not what it appears to be. What a surprise. You know, that is, it isn't a sign September is usually bad. See, because averages are made up of extremes, aren't they? 
you take the average of every experience and divide it by a number of experiences and that's what you get, the average. So in this case, a few extreme Septembers in the 1930s wrecked the average. Now that wasn't just a couple weeks ago, but that's how the data comes to pass. Now, if you take those out of the equation, the average now flips positive, not a lot, but it's still positive, 0.1%. And the September's frequency of positive returns month by month over the, uh, since what, 1986, uh, is 50 of 94 times, or 53%. So there's not anything really wrong with the month. Now we've also had 26 S&P corrections since World War II. Of these, 14 totally, <laughs> there was no, no September involved. While 12 did include September fuller and part, that's just random. Five of the corrections started in September. That'll may do you good at a trivia night. Well, two ended that. So if less than one-fifth of the corrections started in September, it's not exactly useful information. Maybe this September will show us another negative. Maybe it doesn't. We can't know today, but also it doesn't really matter, in my view, because thinking in terms of broad, excuse me, bad months versus good months, that's just silly. A single month is unlikely to prove material in a broad context of your time horizon. It also isn't helpful when you consider markets are cyclical and subject to short-term volatility. You know, bear markets don't magically just show up. Uh, they arrive when uh, investors are all euphoric and are ignoring the creeping fundamental deterioration or when some huge unseen negative thing wallop stocks before sentiment finishes climbing that wall of worry. If you want to avoid some of a bear market's decline, consider these kinds of conditions. Correction to pullbacks, by contrast, start and stop for no reason. But neither bear markets nor corrections run on schedules. We think they're impossible to time precisely, repeatedly, which makes enduring them part of the toll you pay to ride the stock's marvelous long-term returns. Now, trying to avoid volatility by sitting out September might save you a small negative return, A, if it happens, and if you're lucky. But it might also cost you missed returns, plus additional transaction costs and tax headaches. Given September is positive more often than not, in our view, the risk-reward here doesn't make much sense. So, the mantra is, sit tight, be patient, do the uh, own, own thing, and uh, tune down all this September chatter. It's not worth your time and effort and aggravation. Just in passing, we were talking about being patient. You know, it, being patient in investing, it's like uh, the doc telling you to sleep eight hours to, uh, to get good health. You know, it sounds simple too simple perhaps to take seriously, but it's going to make a bigger difference than almost anything you do. Because, see, investors as a group, not you people of course, but investors as a group don't usually learn from booms and busts because when people say they've learned their lesson, well, they underestimate just how much of their previous mistakes were caused by emotions that can and will return when faced with similar circumstances. Training those emotions is a big deal. 
Now, uh, some of the outlooks, uh, UBS had a few comments. Uh, they hiked their year-end S&P target, saying any potential pullback would lead to uh, a new high by year-end. And uh, well, let's see, this, I'm quoting now. This, who's talking here? Uh, well, I guess just some of their general um, analysts. In any case, the summer rally to a new S&P high with potential headwinds like rising rates on the horizon has left investors debating whether U.S. stocks can indeed make meaningful new gains for the rest of the year and into next. Stocks are likely to have a pullback at some point, likely driven by another move higher in real yields, but other tailwinds should drive the S&P to a new high by year-end. They raised its price target for the year-end to 4650 and for uh, reference purposes it's about 4500 right now. And for next year, they've got it at 48.50. Mark Hafley, who is UBS's Global Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer, added this: "The pace of policy changes will be gradual, gradual enough not to derail the economic recovery or the stock rally, while the differences between the more hawkish and more dovish central banks will create opportunities." He goes on to add: "We expect major central banks to remain supportive of growth." keeping rates lower for longer, this is a positive for stock markets, particularly the cyclical and value areas of the market. Now, uh, I wish she'd change her last name, but Savita Subramanian, 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 yeah, I apologize. She's head of equity and quantitative strategy at Bank America. She goes on to say this, this may not end now, but when it ends, it could end badly. If taper means no upside to the S&P 500, tightening could be worse, unquote. She has a 4,600 target on the S&P uh, from here for the end of the year. Morgan Stanley had a few thoughts. Uh, they downgraded U.S. stocks to an underweight on Tuesday. And Andrew Sheets uh, from uh, Morgan Stanley uh, said this, we see a bumpy September-October as the final stages of a mid-cycle transition play out. We continue to think this is a normal cycle, just hotter and faster, and our cycle model remains in expansion. But the next two months carry an outside risk to growth policy and the legislative agenda. Now, Bloomberg uh, tracks 21 forecasters, and they said that 12 of those folks expect the S&P to fall into, fall into the end of the year. And the spread between the highest and lowest target is 24%. Now, that's not exactly tight. Um, chalk it all up to the U word, uncertainty. And these guys cannot deal with uncertainty. So that's why you got a 24% spread between what we think the rest of the year is going to be. Now, I find this was interesting. Here's where uh, perhaps the re writing of an article is a little misleading. The headline, this came from Bloomberg News, says Minerd says U.S. stocks could plunge 15% in a very rough autumn. Now, Scott Minerd, who is chairman and chief investment officer at Guggenheim Investments, he expressed the opinion that September and October are likely to be very rough this year. That's his term. Maybe a pullback of 15% or slightly more. And that's a quote. In his defense, he didn't use the word plunge. 
That was the Bloomberg headline editor's choice, apparently because they decided that unless they used plunge, it didn't seem to be sufficiently terrifying uh, to the prospect of a 15% decline over two months. You think of it in another way, in the lexicon of the clickbaiters, you see a 15% pullback qualifies as a plunge. Well, think of it this way. If you walk up to an elevator, you know how they say up, down, or whatever. Well, what if up instead of up it said soar, S-O-A-R, but instead of down it said plunge? Would you be in a big hurry to push the plunge button? <laughs> Maybe not. So, set aside the question of why an industry veteran like Mr. Mayard would even make a call quite as uh, uninformed as this, predicting the onset, depth, and duration of a meaningless market correction. However, two dozen quote-unquote news outlets, blogs, and the like picked up that 15% plunge story, I guess because they needed to find clickbait wherever they could get hold of it. So, you know, there's also, I got a piece... Uh, recently from Hartford Funds. These guys are good. They come up with some great stuff. Uh, it's, it said, there's always reasons not to invest. And what they've done, uh, th this is through 21, they went back to 1971 and in 10-year increments came up with, you know, what was going on at that time. And uh, what we would have done with $10,000 had you had the uh, ability fortitude to actually make the investment. 1971, and of course we had Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. Uh, the stock market did 14% that year. And if you had invested $10,000 then, and again, this is in the S&P, it'd be worth 1.7 million right now. 1981, big recession. Uh, Mr. Reagan was shot. The market for that year was down about 5%. 10,000 still turned into 771,000 with 10 years less to, left less run to run. 1991, oops, another recession, but the market was up 30%. 10,000 into 211. Well, and in any case, it just continues to show that regardless of what the headlines are, if you put your money in and have the patience to stay with it, you'll probably do okay. Predicting a 15% pullback at some point is about as big a challenge as this along the lines of saying that all the leaves are going to drop off the trees from Labor Day and between Labor Day and Christmas. Come on, you know, who's buried in Grant's tomb? That kind of stuff. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Guide to the Markets had a comment too. He said, despite the average intra-year decline since 1980 of 14.3%, in other words, each year the market would drop by about that much at some point, annual returns, and this is just price, not dividends, have been positive in 31 of 41 years. That's 75%. That's pretty good. So, changing gears a tad, I want to address this uh, issue of investing at um, market highs. Now, it looks as if, dang it, I gotta make a stop here, but we'll come back with this right after the break, and uh, I think you'll have some good thoughts from this. You're listening to Money Management, and I thank you for doing so. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. <laughs> 
Hi, welcome to our final segment of Money Management. This is Mike Mayo of the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. I want to talk with you about something that folks seem to be uh, a little skittish about is, uh, you know, what if I put my money in and the market goes down, or words to that effect. Um, you know, well, that happens, believe it or not. Uh, a gentleman named Nick Murray, who I've followed for, <laughs> well, a whole lot of years, uh, had uh, an interesting uh, thought along that line I'd like to share with you. He said, the Ibbotson Morningstar Statistical Yearbook states that from the beginning of 1926, and again, that's when we have best records, um, through the end of last year, the average annual compound return of the S&P was just over 10%. So, a stock skeptic, whomever those people may be, might have both an objection and a question. The objection might be something along of, well, thanks for sharing, I haven't got 95 years. But that totally misses the point. The question might be, a little drum roll here, yes, but what if I had invested at exactly the wrong time? <laughs> Believe it or not, we did really, well, Nick did a little homework, he said that the single worst day to invest in the S&P 500 since the end of the Second World War was Tuesday, October 9th, 2007. What happened then, Mike? Well, here's what happened. The index closed at a new all-time high, and again, this is in 2007, of 1565. Almost immediately, one might have begun to hear the first rumblings of what a full year later would explode into the financial crisis. Stock market certainly did begin a long, slow decline the following day, anticipating, again, looking forward. That decline accelerated into mid-September of 08, when Lehman Brothers uh, filed bankruptcy, and that kicked off the collapse and market panic. However, the S&P didn't stop dropping until March 9th of 2009 at 677. Net effect was that the S&P in, in that 17 months to the day, October 9th of 2007 at the top to March 2009 at the bottom, it was down 57%. Now that's, that was a lot. Quite a bit more than it had at any time since the 30s. Matter of fact, it wouldn't get back to the level uh, in, of uh, 2007 until 2013. So we're still just about a month shy of the 14th anniversary of that market top. Along that way, in addition to the, the uh, ensuing 57% drop, the S&P has experienced almost 20% declines twice in both 2011 and 2018, as well as last year's 34%, which happened in 33 days, um, in that drop. Now, with all those statistics of serial disaster, let's address that $24 question. What if you'd invested your whole net worth? I mean, you were a, you were a true believer. You put your whole net worth in the S&P at the top on October 9th, 2007, and just hung on. What has been the average annual compound return since that ill-fated mistake? Any guesses? Hands up. Can I see any show hands? Okay. Answer, 10%. What? That's right. The average annual compound return of the S&P from the market top through the, this past month, to uh, this year, 
was 10%, equal to the market's long time average. So if you're someone who's going to work and accumulate capital for 10 years or more, and or is someone who now needs to live off that capital for another 30 years or more, this is important. These particular 14 years offer you very compelling anecdotal evidence of the tremendous power of patience. We're back to that again. In successful lifetime investing. That's the point I'm trying to make. What do you need to do to create and maintain that patience? Well, three traits to build and develop on are faith in the future, number one, which in times of extreme, extreme stress, <laughs> when those 17 months where some called it sheer terror, need not be any more complicated than this too shall pass. Faith in the future. Temperament is the second of the three cardinal virtues in the genuinely superior long-term investor. And, in my experience and observation, rather than intellect, it's almost everything that matters to success. The third virtue, discipline, simply means having a strategy, continuing to work it, looking neither to the left or the right, and ignoring for sure the headlines. If you'd kept investing monthly during those 14 years, you know, doing your 401k, 403b, uh, whatever, your average annual compound return would have been a whole lot higher than 10%. So faith, patience, that's temperament, and discipline and a perspective that takes in the entirety of your investing lifetime, both before and after retirement, and just, not just current events, those turn out to be the critical qualities. And if you're practicing those virtues, history tells you that the earnings, dividends, and values of our economy's leading businesses, aka stocks, have gone up so much longer than they ever went down. So if the only investment you'd ever made in the S&P 500 took place on the single worst day of the entire post-war period, it took only about six years, to 2013, for the index to regain its peak, and about eight more years before you achieved the stock market's quite handsome long-term average return. So I guess the only remaining question then is, how long is too long to wait? Okay. Well, I don't know that either. Okay, in these last few minutes, I want to hit on valuations uh, because that has a lot of people's nose twisted out of joint. There's been uh, a number of uh, so-called pundits proclaiming that valuations are quote-unquote historically high. In fact, more and more headlines seem to be touting as a negative and are supposedly frothy markets are overlooking. Well, metrics like price-to-earnings ratios that P.E. ratios show markets are at their most expensive since the dot-com bubble, according to them, and that supposedly gives uh, an indication of poor forward returns. Well, sometimes folks claim this is about the returns immediately ahead and that a bear market may lurk around the corner. Other times, it refers to the long-run future, but to us, thinking implies valuations are predictive, and history shows that they are not. That's a lesson worth noting more of now. Last year's lockdown skewed quarterly results are still influencing everybody's calculations. You know, the, the uh, data from Global Financial Data Inc. say that the S&P's trailing 12-month price-to-earnings ratio is around 35. That's in the top 3% of readings since 1926. That sound alarming? Nah. Here's why. 
you know, again, their last year's numbers are still influencing uh, today's calculations. And it also explains why the current level uh, is actually down from June's peak. It was at 45.7 down to 35.3 because the second quarter's earnings really helped. But the current valuation still includes those depressed earnings in quarter three and quarter four. So we don't think it's abnormal that the valuations seem to be elevated. Another disconnect is in the pundits carrying on about all the purported relationships between valuations and subsequent returns. Here's another newsflash. There isn't any. There are actually relatively few instances of 35 or higher PEs, and those are clustered into two time periods. One was the tech bubble, and returns 12 months from those instances were bad, let the record reflect. The other is the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, where the returns in the ensuing 12 months were strongly positive. So those offset. Having a high or low PE doesn't tell you where stocks will go over the next year. Same goes for longer-term PEs. They don't foretell distant future returns either. Thing is, high PEs can still deliver very good 20-year appreciation. Over 30-year time horizons, returns are all positive in the markets. So why doesn't valuation drive stocks? That's because most valuation measures, trailing PEs, the CAPE ratio, price-to-sales ratios, dividend yields, yo, 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 all of that, they're backward-looking. As I said earlier, they're just historical. The stuff that already happened, you can't, you know, so what, basically? Even for PEs, those comparing analyst earnings projections of prices are based on estimates made at a given point in time. They often prove too low, then that further inflates the PEs. Moreover, all of them are widely known, that's not exactly state secrets, valuations are among the most commonly taught investment analytics tools, and too many people watch it. What moves forward-looking stocks most? The gap between reality and expectations, something we talked about at the top of the show. Better than or worse than. Valuations give you a sense of sentiment, an indicator of what investors are willing to pay for expected future earnings. And if you had spiking valuations the public either was ignoring or explaining away, that could be a troubling sign. But right now, <laughs> we definitely don't have that. We have the opposite. And that suggests to me that the bull market, more bull market, lies ahead. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. We'll be back next Saturday with more stock news. I hope you have a tremendous positive week. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.